Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. So Genesis chapter 2, beginning to read at verse 18, and you'll find this on page 5 in the Church Bibles. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Our second reading is taken from the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, and you will find this on page 1176 in the Church Bibles. Ephesians, chapter 5, beginning to read at verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, Husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, 
Each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. As we stand, let me pray. We do indeed believe, um, Heavenly Father, that you are a wonderful and great God. As we were thinking last week, a good God who has our best interests at heart. And we pray you'd help us to continue to believe that as we look at your word now. And we pray that uh, believing that would change the way we respond to you in obedience and faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Please do sit down. Now, two things that you might find useful, um, one that is essential, actually, and the other useful. The essential thing is the Bible. Do please open it up, uh, if you would, to uh, Genesis chapter 2, page 5, the uh, reading that Penny read for us a bit earlier. And the other thing that is useful but not essential but might be helpful uh, is uh, the handout uh, for the sermon outline uh, which you were given on the way in, I trust. Uh, So it might be useful to have that. Even if you don't like taking notes, there are a couple of quotes on there and I think it will help you to see them as we go through. Um, In his book, Sex and the Eye World... Dale Cunay makes some fascinating observations about the way the world has changed when it comes to sex in the past 50 years. Uh, He writes this, and bear in mind he's writing into an American context. Since the sexual revolution, a profound change has occurred in the way we view and understand the world. When one regards the relational and sexual values represented by early 1960s shows such as Father Knows Best and Leave It to Beaver, and compares them to the popular television shows of the 21st century, such as Sex and the City and Friends. The contrast is clear. 50 years ago, American television rarely showed significant physical affection between anyone who wasn't married, and even married couples were portrayed as sleeping in separate beds. In today's television shows, sexual relationships are considered normal for virtually everyone with the possible exception of married couples. In fact, contemporary television or cinema rarely portrays healthy marriages or sexual relations within marriage. Isn't that an insightful observation? As the pendulum has swung from a culture where sex was barely mentioned to it being so prominent, it's almost impossible to watch a film or TV programme without it. As the pendulum has swung, the one area where sex is portrayed is rarely portrayed in contemporary television and cinema is in healthy marriages. And because our thinking is so influenced by the things we watch on our screens, whether we realise it or not, that is really having a big impact on us. We are constantly receiving a message that everyone's having sex and lots of it except married couples. Ah, the unspoken message is that sex in marriage is boring if it happens at all. Now, we might add that at one level, our society doesn't even see marriage as necessary. It's certainly not a prerequisite for sex. These days, very few people wait to be married before sleeping together. So this evening, I want to ask, what is the point of sex and sex in marriage? And we come to the first point, if you've got uh, your handout Marriage, God's good gift to bless the world. We start this week where we left off last week at the very beginning. And uh, this week, Genesis chapter 2. And we start here because, as I said last week, uh, what we read here in the Bible, in these opening chapters about sex and marriage, um, is the foundation for everything that we will read in the Bible about sex and marriage. 
So come with me to Genesis chapter two and verse 18. The Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And so in verses 19 and 20, the Lord brought all the birds and animals before Adam like a parade. They passed in front of Adam. As we sort of read this, as we watch, we're on the edge of our seats wondering which one is going to be the best match for Adam. An elephant? A parrot? An aardvark? A dog? Oh, of course it's going to be a dog because a man's best friend is his dog, isn't it? It's like a bizarre first edition of Take Me Out. Well, clearly you know what it is, but for those of you who don't know what Take Me Out is, it's a television dating show. And let me say, it is a dreadful show, so for those of you who don't know it, good on you, you are very discerning, unlike you lot. Anyway, where was I? Yes, all the birds and animals passed before Adam, and halfway through verse 20 we read, but for Adam no suitable helper was found. So it seems a man's best friend is not his dog after all. And so in verses 21 and 22, God made Eve and brought her to Adam. And from the first moment he saw Eve, Adam knew that Eve was the perfect helper for him. And he said, verse 23, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my bones. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. I love that. Notice how it's written. Notice we move from narrative, from being told the facts and the story to a piece of poetry. At the first sight of Eve, Adam bursts into song. His heart melts. He sees Eve and he is blown away by her. Wow, she's drop-dead gorgeous. She's perfect for me. And he's so bold over that he picks up his guitar and composes a song. (laughs) See, verse 23 is the first love song. It's the first power ballad ever. Eve makes Adam's heart sing. I love it. And please do note that very thing because some of what I'm about to say could make marriage sound quite functional. I really don't want us to think that marriage is nothing more than a convenience to help us do what we should be doing in life. It is so much more than that. Marriage is a love story of the heart and we'll definitely see that before the end of the talk. For now, see that Eve is Adam's perfect helper. That's the word in verse 18 and verse 20. God made a helper suitable for Adam. And it's crucial we understand that word helper. Most of us are reading the NIV, the New International Version. If you have an ESV, either on you or at home, the English Standard Version, you'll see in the footnote of, to that word helper, it's explained as corresponding to. It's a word that gives us the idea of someone who is opposite but complementary. It takes us back to chapter 1 and verse 27, where we read that God made both genders in his own image. Very important, male and female. No one gender has supremacy. The Bible clearly teaches equality between the sexes, well, all the way through the Bible, but definitely here. Both male and female together present the image of God. But clearly, Male and female are different. Men and women complement each other. They're not the same. Marriage then is made when two equal but different people are joined by God. It's what we saw last time in chapter 2 verse 24. God's definition of marriage is between one man and one woman for life. Now we'll need to come back to that in a couple of weeks time when we think about same sex attraction. For now, see that Eve is created by God as a complementary helper for Adam. But to help Adam do what? 
Well, again, chapter 1, verses 27 and 28 help us. Verse 27, human beings are made in the image of God and as image bearers of God, we are to reflect God's character and his purpose for the world. So, verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. You see there, it's about God's blessing. Verse 28, God blessed them. And the blessing of God is spread throughout the world. As verse 28, they are fruitful and multiply and as they subdue the earth. So in those two ways, we reflect that we are image bearers, bearing the image of God. First, by being fruitful. You see, God is the source of all life. He has just created life. So as his image bearers, we are to also bear life. We are to procreate. And the second way we demonstrate that we are the image bearers of God is bringing order to the world, to subdue the world, verse 28. Because you see in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, before God created the world, there was just dark, formless emptiness. So as those who bear the image of God, mankind should bring light and life and order to the world. You see, in short, Adam, as an image bearer of God, was to bring life and blessing to the world. But chapter 2, verse 18, he was alone and he couldn't do that alone. Now please, Adam being alone here is not saying he was lonely. Not poor old Adam just sitting in the world with nothing to do. Adam wasn't alone in that sense. He wasn't lonely. He was in a lovely, perfect relationship with God. He couldn't have been more, more fulfilled. No, this is about Adam being unable to do what he should do, bring life and blessing to the world, on his own, alone. There are some things you see you can't do on your own. I, I had to move some heavy furniture the other weekend. On my own, I couldn't do it. Not just because I'm a skinny little weakling, but because the items I was trying to move couldn't be moved by one person. Even a big, strong person like Tim couldn't have moved them. They were too awkward for one person to carry. So it was not good for me to be alone in that job. So I asked someone to help me because... There's some things you can't do on your own. Do you see? That's the aloneness. And that is certainly true, and may I say very obvious that I hardly need to say it, when it comes to human beings bringing life. You can't procreate on your own. But Adam was alone, so he needed a helper to do that. And so Eve was given to Adam to do that. Now this is very important at this point because last week we acknowledged that the church has often given the impression or even taught that sex is in some way dirty or naughty. Read the church fathers, which I haven't done, but Ben Cooper has and he told me this, so it must be true. Read the church fathers and you could accuse them of teaching that sex is only for procreation. Now last week we saw very clearly that sex is not dirty or naughty and it's not only for making babies. It is a good gift from God to be enjoyed in marriage. But having said all that last week, and I still stand by it, we mustn't now go to the other extreme and suggest that sex has nothing to do with making babies. Of course it does. And so here we see that procreation was a crucial and important part of spreading life and blessing all over the world. Adam couldn't do that on his own. So Eve was given. Marriage was given so that Adam and Eve, as God's image bearers, could spread life and blessing all over the world. Now today as Christians, we know that life and blessing comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So marriage is given to us by God to help us spread the life and blessing of the gospel to the world. 
that happens in a number of ways. It happens as Christian couples raise their children to know and follow the Lord Jesus. Uh, But it's much further than that. We should consider marriage as a way to spur each other on in the work of the gospel. uh, Opening our homes for the gospel, using our time for the gospel, giving our money to support gospel ministry, encouraging our spouse to put the gospel first and our spouse encouraging us, working out how as a couple we can be most effective in the gospel work. So when Caroline and I got married, someone prayed on our wedding day that marriage would help us to be more effective in gospel ministry. Now look, once you realise that's what marriage is for, why, if you're a Christian, would you want to marry an unbeliever? Why? See, after you, your spouse is the person who will most influence your children. And to me, my children are the most important people on the planet. Why would I want to marry an unbeliever if marriage is, as we say in the Church of England marriage service, and it's uh, quoted on the bottom of the sheet, marriage is given as the foundation of family life in which children may be born and nurtured in accordance with God's will to his praise and glory. Why would I want to marry an unbeliever if it means that I won't be as free to use my home and my time and my money for the gospel? In short, being married should help you and not hinder you in spreading the life and blessing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so marriage should help you to become more and more the person you should be. Tim Keller is brilliant on this point in in this book. It's a very good book, The Meaning of Marriage. But on this point, he's brilliant. He explains how marriage is a, a perfect environment in which to be changed and transformed into the likeness of Christ. Because in marriage, I am loved unconditionally and known intimately And that is a brilliant environment for change. Let me explain. I should be able to take constructive criticism from Caroline, even if her criticism is hard and goes deep. I should be able to take it from her because it's given to me by someone who loves me unconditionally. If you come up and criticise me, I should listen to it, but I won't necessarily know that your motives are pure. And so I know when Caroline points out my character flaws, which takes a long time, she has my best interests at heart. She's not out to get me. She's on my side. She loves me unconditionally. I'm not saying it's easy to hear constructive criticism from Caroline. I'm just saying if I can't take it from her, then who will I take it from? And second in marriage, I'm known intimately by her. So as Caroline gives me criticism, I can't hide or pretend because she knows me intimately. She knows what I'm really like. That's very important because when any of us has shown our faults, our natural inclination is to excuse ourselves, to blame others or to blame our circumstances. But in marriage, I can't hide. Caroline can say to me, no, Paul, this is a pattern I've observed in you for many years. No, it's not about your circumstances. No, this is not someone else's fault. And I can't hide because she knows me intimately. So do you see how marriage can help me to hear the truth about myself because Caroline loves me unconditionally and because she knows me intimately. And so it is a perfect environment for me to grow and to become more Christ-like. And the more Christ-like I am, the more effective I will be in bringing life and blessing to the world. Marriage then is a wonderful institution that God has given us to help us to spread the life and blessing of the gospel all over the world. And if you're single here this this evening and hearing this and wondering if this leaves you a second-class Christian citizen, let me say right now, absolutely not. But that is all for next week. But I will cover that next week. Marriage 
God's good gift to bless the world. Second and over the page on the handout, sex, God's good gift to strengthen marriage. Now we began to see this last week. Look again at chapter two, verse 24 of Genesis. Verse 24, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and they'll become one flesh. There's God's definition of marriage. If you weren't here last week, please do listen to the recording from from last week uh, so that I don't have to go over everything again this week. As we saw last week, that phrase, one flesh, right at the end of verse 24, is picked up in the New Testament to refer to sex. So sex is a very significant part of marriage. So verse 24, God unites a man and a woman together in marriage. So you can picture the scene, it happens here quite regularly. I take a wedding, I stand down there, the couple are in front of me. When the bride and groom have made their marriage vows, publicly declaring that they love, comfort, honour and protect each other, promising to forsake all others as long as they both shall live. And when they exchange rings as a symbol and a reminder of the vows that they've just taken, then I declare them husband and wife. And the very first words I say are the words of the Lord Jesus that we looked at last week. Those whom God has joined together, let no one divide. They have been joined together by God in that moment. So marriage is much more than a ceremony. Certainly a lot more than a a legal document. It's a profound thing. It is being joined by God. And here's the point for this point now. Having been joined together by God, the couple are then to express that physically in sex. Yes, on their wedding night, but right through their married life. They are to become, verse 24, one flesh. Sex is designed by God to physically express the deep reality that God has joined them. But more than that, sex is designed by God to help glue people together. For that reason, sex is very powerful, which is why it shouldn't be used in the wrong place. I rummaged around in the cupboard at home this weekend and found this tube of superglue still unopened. On the back of the packet, it says, danger, bonds, skin and eyes in seconds. I can still remember back in the 1960s when tubes of superglue were first sold commercially to the general public. Some of you remember it as well. Everybody was very excited to have something this powerful to repair their broken things. Before that, it was just sellotape. Ah, but it was new on the market, and so tons of people had to take themselves off to A&E because they accidentally stuck their fingers together while they were using it. And they tried to prise their fingers open, and firstly, they couldn't do it, but if they kept pushing too hard then, or pulling too hard, then lumps of skin would come away. It was horrible. You see, stick the wrong things together with superglue and it causes damage and harm because it is so powerful. Sex is the same. It glues people together, which is brilliant when people are supposed to be bonded together and never to be separated, but it's dangerous when they're not supposed to be glued together. That's why sex should not be had outside marriage as God defines it. Sex comes with a warning, danger, bonds people together instantly. Until you have committed yourself in marriage, one man, one woman, for life. See, until you are committed publicly for life, then sex is gluing together what is not yet permanent and that causes harm when you pull yourself apart. That's why Christian parents and Christian ministers like me tell you not to have sex until you're married. You think it's just because God wants to stop your fun 
or the minister just wants to stop your fun. That, of course, was the lie that we saw in Genesis chapter 3 last week. God doesn't love me. He's just out to ruin my life. But we have to believe that God invented sex and he knows how it works best. We have to believe that God loves us and he really wants best for you. Well, look look at the cross tonight as we take communion if you doubt that God loves, loves you. That's how much he loves you. He's not out to hurt you. He's to help you because sex outside marriage causes hurt and harm. And sadly, some of you know that all too painfully. You've experienced the pain when you've separated from someone that you've been involved with sexually. It really, really hurts. It hurts much more than pulling away from someone that you've not been physical with. So William Taylor writes, quote is on here, The physical act of sex with its intimacy and self-exposure emotionally, psychologically and physically is so intimate, so gluing that we cannot move from God's plan without causing significant damage to ourselves individually and to those around us. And we'll think more about this when we think next week about singleness. More positively though, you see sex is God's superglue and so sex should be enjoyed regularly in marriage. Turn with me if you will now to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, Page 1148 is the page number that you need. Page 1148, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now again, we'll be coming back to this chapter next week because it's mainly a chapter about singleness actually. It's a very positive chapter about singleness. But uh, just at the beginning, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 2, page 1148. Verse 2, since there's so much immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty by which he's talking about sex. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's does not belong to him alone but also to the wife. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer, then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, I wonder if that's a surprise to you. I know many of you will know this, but it will be a surprise to some. The Bible doesn't just say that sex is okay or permitted in marriage. It says if you're married, be sure to be having sex. Don't deprive each other. Meet each other's sexual needs. Indeed, the only time you should abstain from sex if you are married is if you mutually agree to give a time that you would normally spend having sex to praying instead. And then only abstain from sex for a short time. Sex is that important in marriage that married couples should keep making love. And so may I gently encourage you, if you're in a marriage where sexual intimacy has stopped... And we need to be honest, that does happen. Marriages do go through these difficult times. If that is happening, please talk to one another about it. If you're here tonight, when you go home, begin to say, you know, what are we going to do about this? And if you can't work it out together, then come and ask somebody for some help. Nobody's going to look down their nose at you or think there's something odd. These things happen. It's that important, though, because sex is a good gift that God has given to help strengthen your marriage. 
Uh, marriage, goods, uh, God's good gift to bless the world. Second, marriage, uh, sex, uh, God's good gift to strengthen marriage. And third, marriage and sex, God's good gift to point us to a greater reality. And we're uh, on page three of the handout. Now to see this, turn with me to Ephesians chapter five, the last time we're gonna flick in the Bible, page 1177, uh, 1176. Ephesians chapter five, verses 21 to 32, page 1176 and 1177. Now this passage is a wonderful passage. It's been much aligned because of this word submit because people don't understand the word. I don't have time to explain that word tonight but I have preached on this before and the link to the sermon is on the bottom of the handout on the page four if you want to follow it up. So I'm not ducking it because I don't believe it. Just I don't have time for it. Now as this was read, as Penny read the Bible so helpfully for us tonight, did you see the surprise in this passage as it was read See, here is Paul talking about husbands and wives. Verse 22, wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Verse 25, husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Verse 28, uh, in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. Paul is clearly talking about human marriage. And then in verse 31, Paul quotes Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. There it is, this foundational passage that the Bible keeps coming back to. And after quoting Genesis chapter 2, Paul writes verse 32. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ in the church. There's a surprise. I'm talking about Christ in the church. And when we read that, we might be tempted to say, no, no, you're not, Paul. You're talking about human marriage. And then as you go back through the passage, it's clear that Paul was talking about Christ in the church as well as talking about human marriage. Look at verse 22 again. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. He's talking about Christ in the church as well. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her, and so on. This is talking about both Christian marriage and the relationship between Christ and his people because Christian marriage is meant to reflect the greater relationship between Christ and his people. It's not unusual when I'm talking to people about the gospel and I talk about, you know, you probably do this, I talk, I, I talk about the fact that um, Christianity is not a, a religion but a relationship. It's, it's all relational language in the Bible, isn't it? You know, we, we, we're told to call God our Father, relational. We're brothers and sisters, all relationship. And it's not unusual when I talk about that for somebody to say, what do you mean about having a relationship with God? And I say to them, look at a good Christian marriage and you'll know exactly what I mean. Because that's what this says. Now isn't that quite something? If you're married, your marriage is to reflect to the world something of the greatest relationship someone can ever know, the relationship between the Lord Jesus Christ and his church and his people. This is why it's such a tragedy when people are disparaging about their spouse. Sadly, Karen and I have experienced Christian couples putting each other down in public. Christian married couples having little digs at each other at dinner parties. Apart from it being embarrassing, it is such a bad thing to witness. Because Jesus never does that with his church. He loves his bride. He delights in his church. He doesn't have little goes and digs at the church all the time. Here is why it's so outrageous for a Christian to be adulterous. Because at that moment you are saying, Jesus won't be faithful to you. 
And I want to say this gently because I know there are people for whom this has been difficult and it's not as straightforward as it always seems, but I do want to say here's why Christians should not divorce. Now look, that's another big subject and I want to say that very carefully, but just stay with me for the picture at the moment. It's because that's saying Jesus might up and leave you for another, leave you high and dry. Now there has to be a statement here that clearly there are times when divorce is permitted in the Bible. But do you see the point? Now, Glyn Harrison brilliantly, brilliantly writes, and the quote is on here, God loves, God's love for us is presented as faithful, covenantal, and permanent. It doesn't waver. He doesn't do one-night stands. He doesn't grow tired of us. He doesn't fall in love with someone else. Marriage is an icon of God's faithfulness. And a page later in this great book, he writes, the wife and husband who remain faithful to each other for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health, not only bear testimony to the kind of love that God has for us, but they put it on display. Christian marriage is designed to point people to a greater relationship. So let's rejoice with a couple as they celebrate their golden wedding anniversary and many years of faithful marriage. More than that, let's point to couples like that and say of their marriage, that is a brilliant visual aid of God's love and faithfulness to us. And even more than that, part of being faithful is to love your spouse in a way that enables them to flourish Look down at verse 25 of Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing of, with water through the word and to present to her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. See, Jesus loves you and me so much. He wants us to flourish, to reach our full potential, to be the rounded, complete, content people we could be. And so in our marriage, I am to create an environment where Caroline can flourish and reach her full potential and become the most rounded, complete and content person she can be. That is my job. And when marriages are lived like that, it speaks to the world of just how good Jesus is. Just how much he is for us. Good Christian marriages declare to the world that there's an even greater relationship that is so much better than any relationship we can ever have. Better even than the greatest human marriage. So aim for that. Those of you who are married, aim for that in your marriage. If you're not yet married and you want to be married in the future, this should be your desire for the person you are thinking about who you might marry. And ask yourself... Will I be good for them in helping them reach their full potential in Christ? In other words, start being godly yourself. Let's pray for marriages to be like this. And if you're not married and have been wondering how all of this so far relates to you, then please see that God wants other people's marriages to bring him glory this way. So pray for marriages that you know. That would be a brilliant thing that you could do. Marriage then is a picture of the greater relationships, of the greater relationship. And very briefly and finally, what of sex in marriage then? Well, sex too is to reflect something quite spectacular about God's love for us. 
You see, if marriage is to reflect the greater and greatest relationship in the, in the universe, namely the relationship between God and his people, then sex in marriage is to tell us something about God's passion for us. William Taylor puts it like this. It's uh, right at the bottom of page three. One purpose of marriage and of sex within marriage is to provide an illustration within marriage of the intimate union with Jesus for which every one of us is created. Yes, sex in marriage is both for uh, procreation and joy and pleasure, but ultimately it's there to symbolise and to demonstrate the intimate union for which all of us were created, our union with Jesus. Glyn Harrison goes even further as he writes, and this is over the page now on the handout, He writes, our sexual attractions and desires show us the passionate nature of God's love. We can learn about it in our heads, but the experience of our bodies brings it home to our hearts. Please don't misunderstand what is being said here. This is not saying that God has sex with the church. God is without body or parts. Don't misunderstand the point, but equally don't miss the point. When looking for an experience to express the intensity of the emotion God has for his people... The intensity of sex expresses the intensity of God's love and passion for us. The words of Glyn Harrison again. When the Bible searches for pictures to help us comprehend the character and enormity of God's passion for us, it has no problem in embracing the entire spectrum of erotic desire. Of course, elements of this are metaphorical. God is not embodied as we are, but in the the Bible's portrayal of the intensity of the delight and pleasure that God feels towards us, it is. It's as if nothing else but sex will do. Isn't that remarkable? In sex and romance, we have a picture of the intensity God has for his people. Remember Adam burst into song when he saw Eve. And billions of human beings since have known that feeling of going weak at the knees when we first talked to someone we liked. And that experience helps us to know how God is towards us. We're that precious to him. If you're single or married, happy or or, or deeply discontent, know that there is one in the universe, the one true God who loves you so intently. One who loves you like no other. One whose heart is bursting for you. One who loves you enough to die for you. And one who one day you will be with fully. And at that moment when your relationship with him is fully consummated, you will come into a greater experience than any possible human experience ever. I began by asking the question, is sex in marriage boring? Does it even happen after the first excitement of the honeymoon and maybe a few years of marriage if you're lucky? The way marriage is portrayed in films and on TV, you would think so. But the Bible has a very different view. Sex in marriage is beautiful, powerful, essential, commanded even. And even more than that, marriage and sex in marriage is a great human display of the greatest relationship available to us all. Indeed, marriage and sex in marriage points us to the great relationship we were made for, the relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the gospel, 
That is a relationship that is available to everyone, male or female, single or married. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I've been, um, I've been amazed and blown away as I've been reading around this subject to think of just how much you love us, the intensity of your love. We thank you that as we'll see in just a moment, we, we see just how much you love us when we look at the cross of the Lord Jesus. That is the supreme demonstration of your love. But we do thank you that in human marriage you give us a picture of uh, just the kind of love you have uh, for your bride. May we be blown away by it and indeed in the nicest and best sense wooed by it. You, the one who loves us, may we run to you with our arms open wide, thankful that we have one who loves us like that. In Jesus' name, amen.